Hey guys, welcome back to the Nutrition Expedition. Before today's episode, we just wanted to say, we're not qualified specialists. If you have any issues, see a healthcare professional. The daily posts, including recipes, exercises, nutrition facts, and calorie comparisons, follow us on Instagram at The Nutrition Expedition. Peace. Hey guys, welcome back. And today we have the founder of Avexia Wellbeing and currently he's completing his PhD study focusing on protein. We welcome Drew Mercier. Thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. Lucky Mateo, it's a pleasure, boys. It's a pleasure. Awesome, man. We'd just like to start off with, we ask this to all our guests um, that are in the nutritional field. Uh, what got you into studying in the field of nutrition and more specifically uh, protein? Yeah, so look, I started my um, nutrition journey um, as a PT, as a personal trainer. So um, I was 18 years old, fresh out of school, and started personal training. Um, And I guess I really fell in love with nutrition when, you know, you start to train clients and you start to realize that, you know, exercise is great and it's one component, but the huge component of somebody's, you know, outcomes and the way somebody feels and and all of that jazz comes from what they're eating. Um, And so I kind of got to a point where I was like, I don't really know anything about nutrition, let alone um, enough information or quality information to pass on to my clients. So off I went and did a nutrition degree um, when I was 19 and uh, it absolutely fell in love with it. Um, everything about it, I, I, I was diving really deep into things like food behaviour and why people were eating and, and that was really 10 years of my career. The first 10 years of my career was looking into like body compositional change, why people are choosing the foods they are um, and trying to kind of play around and manipulate those food habits and then um, the last probably three or four years really dived into protein and muscle and exercise performance and all that sort of stuff and and uh and now really looking into uh, predominantly the female population and looking at the protein requirements of, of females and how that varies over the course of the menstrual cycle and how performance varies over the uh, menstrual cycle as well so you know probably much the same as you guys you know you, you see women in the gym and they're freaking powerful you know and they're stronger relatively to men a lot of the times and they, they turn up and they have a go and they're super strong and that impressed me so I'm like we need to do more on, on female research you know so that's pretty much how it all started it's really interesting and I love how you went into more the behavioral side of people because I think the biggest uh, gap we have with PTs is their knowledge of basic macronutrients and actually yep. looking at the behavioral side because a lot of the time they'll tell their uh the people that they're uh, training, they'd be like, do this, do that. And then they wouldn't understand why they're not doing it. And if you understand the behavioral side, it, it makes a whole new ball game, doesn't it? A hundred percent. Look, everything we do is based off habits as humans, right? So once you can start to identify those habits and start to figure out triggers and things like that, it literally changes the game for the way people move, the way people live, the way people eat. So definitely I, I dived as deep as I could into that kind of space and read as much as I could and learn as much as I could and apply it as much as I could. And it's a fascinating area. Um, and it's absolutely, it's a fundamental building blocks of what we do, right? So definitely. Exactly. Yeah, and now, now we'll get into the, the bulk of the episode, uh, pardon the pun. Um, we'll get yeah. into the protein <laughs> of the episode. Um, 
I'd just like to ask, uh, just like to give our listeners maybe a little bit of a brief overview of, of how you study and, and, and um, yeah, your study of nutrition and, and protein more specifically has been going lately. Yeah, yeah, look, it's been really exciting. So as I said, the last couple of years, we've dived really deep into the, in the female population. Um, we've dived really deep into understanding what the protein requirements of female athletes are and also how that changes over the course of a menstrual cycle. Um, we also intended on doing some stuff around contraceptive use as well, um, which kind of didn't really work out. Our subject size was small and it didn't really allow for that um, that avenue to be explored. But um, we, we, we have good quality data and guidelines based on male athletes, right? So we've got the American College of Sports Nutrition who put our position stand a few years ago and, and they sort of said, these are the protein requirements of male athletes. So we have good quality data on that. And they really simply said, look, for a female athlete, take 15% off those figures and off they go. And that kind of didn't really sit very well with us because as I said before, women, um, you know, relatively kilo for kilo train as hard as men, if not harder, they lift as much as men, if not more as men, you know, the, popularity of female sport is increasing rapidly the number of female athletes participating in sport is increasing rapidly so just taking 15 percent off what men require wasn't good enough for us it didn't sit well with us so we're like no let's do it let's um let's do a lit review so that's what we did first we scanned all the literature um based on our female athletes and protein intake um, and performance outcomes uh, we came up with 16 studies, um, 16 studies ever completed um, on this field, which is nothing in comparison to men. Um, and we created a lit review and we created some guidelines. So the very first guidelines ever created on um, the protein requirements of female athletes. And that's currently getting published now. Um, and uh, basically we went from there, we dived a bit deeper into how performance changes over the menstrual cycle um, and uh, just trying to to initiate more research to, to come in future years it's kind of one of those spaces where you know researching women isn't harder than researching men it's just a little bit more time consuming right because of the menstrual cycle so it's a little bit more time consuming and hopefully now we've kind of opened up a can of worms so researchers across the world can start to you know chip in and start to do some research in this space and and kind of come up with some really strong guidelines for women like we have for men yeah, so that's basically the basis of, it, of what we've done the last couple of years that's really interesting you've actually that interests me a lot I, I find that really fascinating in regards to how it changes through the menstrual cycle so do you want to go through with our listeners how female athletes do have to change their protein requirements through the menstrual cycle and as well can you talk about how their performance changes in consequence to where they are in the menstrual cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should prelude this by saying the data is currently limited. Um, so these aren't definitive set in stone recommendations yet. Um, however, it, they are the best we've got um, so far. Yeah. So things are going to change as we study more and research more. But what we've currently got, I guess we should start, if we look at the protein requirements of men, right? So the protein requirements alter between the form of exercise that you're doing. So we've got a really classic example is um, resistance training. Okay, so weights training. Um, the requirements are set at around 1.2, 1.4, 1.6 grams of protein per kilo of your body weight. 
okay? So that's the guidelines for men. Um, if you're looking at uh, endurance athletes, it's about 1.4 to 1.6 grams per kilo. And if we look at what we call intermittent athletes, which is team sport athletes, we're looking at a little bit less, 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilo, right? So that's the basic guidelines that we've got currently for male athletes. So if we look at female athletes, um, they're actually very, very similar to the requirements of men, um, almost identical, really. It's around that 1.4 to 1.6 grams per kilo mark, and that's quite consistent across all forms of exercise, okay? Now, if we look at, um, as you mentioned, the difference between... Uh, the requirements and the performance outcomes over the course of the menstrual cycle. Um, I guess if we overview the menstrual cycle first, that might create some context. So there's three major phases of the menstrual cycle. Um, we've got the follicular phase, which starts the menstrual cycle. We've got uh, the ovulatory phase, which is the middle of the menstrual cycle. And we've got the luteal phase, which ends the menstrual cycle, right? And then that's all dictated by menses, okay? So that's the bleed. And uh, a typical cycle can last between 21, 35 days, somewhere in there is considered a normal cycle, right? So the phases are going to be slightly different length every time. Now, if we look at how the follicular phase is categorised, that's categorised by low progesterone levels and low oestrogen levels until we get towards ovulation where oestrogen levels increase, okay? Now, the, the significance of that is that we know estrogen as a hormone is an anabolic hormone, okay? So we know that when estrogen starts to rise, performance and therefore the capabilities of that female athlete to be anabolic, to increase the growth of tissue, increases, okay? So if we look at the follicular phase, the early follicular phase has low estrogen and low progesterone, and the late follicular phase as a rise in estrogen and therefore we have identified that in that late follicular phase coming up into ovulation that's where women tend to be the most anabolic and potentially and we don't know this for sure yet but potentially the most receptive to resistance training okay so if we're looking at increasing strength we're looking at increasing muscle tissue potentially women are more beneficial to increase their training volume and load pre-ovulation and also therefore increase their protein requirements to help fuel that anabolic response that they could be getting okay and then if we go into the uh luteal phase luteal phase is where estrogen starts to decrease and it decreases to its bottom level as the end of the luteal phase or the end of the menstrual cycle approaches, okay? Now, in the luteal phase, we start to see decreased amino acid levels within women's plasma, blood. We also see an increase in nitrogen excretion throughout the luteal phase, and that's probably because estrogen as an anabolic hormone is decreasing. Okay, and then we're also seeing greater energy expenditure, so higher metabolic rates during the luteal phase. So women are starting to eat more, they're becoming more hungry, their appetite hormones are increasing. So if we look at how does the protein requirements alter over the course of the menstrual cycle, we're looking at during the late follicular phase, pre-ovulation, so in the middle of their menstrual cycle, we're looking at their anabolic response increasing 
and therefore they may be susceptible to um, greater anabolic benefits. If we look at the luteal phase as we approach menses again, we're looking at decreased performance um, levels and we're also looking at a phase where they are most catabolic, so they're susceptible to breaking down more tissue. So therefore, perhaps it's not a good idea for them to be doing high volume, high resistance training loads in the late luteal phase coming up into their next bleed. Um, and theoretically, it would make sense that they should increase their protein intake during that period as well, because they are breaking down more tissue. Um, and to prevent that breakdown of tissue, we need protein, right? So we're looking at a few things um, happening throughout the the course of one cycle and we're definitely not looking at um, something as simple as a male's requirements or a male's um, physiological response throughout the course of a month. Um, it is a lot more complex um, and things that we're starting to learn now are really going to help benefit particularly elite level athletes in the future. You've explained that so well. You've been able to simplify it where anyone can understand that. I think you actually explained that really well, Drew. Thanks for that. Uh, Thank you. Been well, doing this for two years. <laughs> <laughs> got some experience. Uh, one thing also is when people are losing weight, and particularly females, how does that alter how much protein they should in, uh, intake, and does that affect their performance around the menstrual cycle as well? when they're trying to lose weight? Yeah, when they're in the deficit. Yeah, yeah. So look, we know that protein is critical generally, so not just for women, for men as well, for the preservation of muscle tissue while we're in energy deficit. So uh, one of the most important things to focus on when we're in energy deficit is ensuring that we're getting adequate protein to preserve the muscle tissue that we already have. Um, and that is exacerbated in the female population because of the increase in anabolic hormone estrogen and then the rapid decrease in anabolic hormone estrogen as the cycle comes to an end. So um, super critical that women are meeting their protein requirements during all parts of the phase, so generally anyway, but even more critical in energy deficit during that late luteal phase um, and early follicular phase. So therefore, the period of time, kind of the week before and the week after the bleed, really, really important um, that they're meeting their protein requirements there. But I should say throughout the whole cycle, it's critical, um, particularly when they're in energy deficit. Cool. Yeah, now, now we're just going to look at um, different types of protein, and protein powder is very prominent throughout the health and nutrition industry. Um, but yeah. I just wanted to ask you, Drew, maybe you could offer your ideas on um, is protein powder something every everyone needs or do you think people should be looking more for the natural sources of protein um, within their daily diets? Yeah, look, that's a great question um, and probably a question that doesn't have one defined answer for everybody. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a saying with my, with my clientele, if you can't eat it, drink it. Um, so... Look, the protein requirements of the athletic population, um, and that includes recreational athletes, that, that's not just um, elite athletes, it's recreational athletes as well. So anyone that's meeting the Australian Physical Activity Guidelines, so 150 minutes of exercise per week or more. Um, the protein requirements are substantially greater than a sedentary person, right? They're almost double. So therefore, uh, meeting those requirements is going to need, require eating more food 
And not everybody is able to do that because we have full-time jobs, we have lives, we have partners, we have work, we have stress, we have all these elements and we can't dedicate our life to eating protein necessarily. And in those cases, if you cannot eat the amount of protein required to increase your performance and to increase your chance of preserving muscle mass, I say drink it. And I think there's probably a little bit of stigma, particularly in the female population with protein powders and they're gonna make you bulky yeah. and, and you know, they're almost like a steroid kind yeah. of thing, which is not true. It's just a it's just a simplified powdered version of, of whey, you know, milk protein, right? So um, look, as I say, if you can't eat the amount of protein required, drink it because drinking is a substantially easier way of meeting your protein requirements. Um, are they essential for everybody? Absolutely not. And I have plenty of people who just don't enjoy, like all well, the people don't enjoy drinking for some reason, but some people just don't enjoy the taste, the sweetness, the grittiness. They don't enjoy elements of it. And that's completely fine. You can get it from food sources. So it really comes down to personal preference. The only asterisk is if they are not meeting their protein requirements through food, um, it's really not a choice. They need to be consuming yeah. some kind of supplement to boost that, that requirement. Because as I said, the requirements are substantially greater than somebody who is not exercising. So yeah. really important. And also I was curious as to what your thoughts are between plant and whey protein. And do you want to explain to the listeners what the difference is and how it, like what's more superior? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I guess plant vegan based proteins have become really popular the last few years um they've really exploded um in terms of what's available um they're, they're becoming better and better as fast as palatability and and you know um uh yeah taste and all that sort of stuff they're becoming much better the downside of them being quite new is there isn't a lot of research on the quality of that protein when it comes to um building new tissue, so when it comes to muscle protein synthesis, whereas whey's been around for decades and there's a lot of research um, on whey proteins um, and they're a really excellent source of protein for um, uh, creating muscle protein synthesis, so generating new muscle, muscle tissue. Um, that appears to be because of the superior amino acid prof profile that whey contains. Um, in saying that, however, I have seen some really good quality um, vegan based proteins out there as well who have a who are matching um, the amino acid profile and particularly the branch chain amino acid profile of whey so um, really for me um, I don't sway one way or the other anymore because they're both really high quality these days um, I just come down to personal preference and, and obviously if somebody has a an intolerance to dairy for example you would recommend them consume a dairy free protein powder um, what I look for in a protein is is number one a, a really high quality protein source so if you're getting a whey protein make sure it's from a really good quality milk product um, so I look for a, a really good quality protein source I look for the highest amount of protein um, ie the less amount of fillers um, possible and I look for a really strong branch chain amino acid profile so um, they're the three things that I really look for and, and probably the listeners should look for when they're choosing a protein powder you want something that's at least 80% protein um, anything less than that they're probably adding too many fillers into the product um, and therefore it's it's probably not a, a bang for your buck product yeah and I sell sports supplements as a casual job and uh 
something I recommend if people are taking vegan protein is getting a blend rather than just a pea or like for example a rice protein because it contains all your amino acids together which is much better for protein synthesis correct exactly exactly you want you want a nice broad range if we're looking at muscle protein so you want a nice broad range of amino acids you want a really strong bcaa branch chain amino acid profile um and you're exactly right you want to when it comes to those vegan based proteins we know about um, protein combining so we get a full amino acid profile so exactly right getting a combination of e rice hemp all of those are, are really really important yeah yeah, and do you have any recommendations in regards to specific brands or not off the top of your head? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. Look, we um, uh, when it comes to a vegan-based protein, um, we sell a, a product called Pure Blends, um, which is a combination of pea, rice, and hemp protein. Um, we chose that um, because of the amino acid profile number one um also uh they come flavored so there's a mango flavor there's a, a chocolate flavor and there's a unflavored product and it quite literally is four ingredients so oh, it's good. pea rice hemp and dried mango or pea oh, wow. rice hemp and, and cacao so we choose that because it's the cleanest yeah. um protein we've, we've seen and and um that combination of the pea rice and hemp um gives it a really really nice uh, amino acid profile so we're really happy with that product um and when it comes to whey based products we use a brand called myopure um we use myopure because um i know the owner number one but um he is a he's, he's a uh obsessive guy who who always strives for the highest quality he possibly can um, and i know that genuinely so um that's the products that we use but Look, there's so many good ones out there these days. I think people are more aware of quality of protein and, and more aware of what is in their product that they're drinking these days. So there's plenty of good ones to choose from, I'm sure. You've got plenty working in that space. Yeah, and you talked about the different types of, you know, consuming it through powder and, and through food as well. Could you maybe offer any supplements that people could take, you know, if they, if they can't drink it, as you said, if you can't eat it, drink it. What if they can't drink it? Would there be any other supplements that you would um, prefer people to try out for protein? When it comes to protein? Yeah. Yeah, look, that's a real challenge. Um, you could always consume a branch chain amino acid supplement um, if you were really struggling to consume adequate protein. Um, the only issue with that is you, you get three of the amino acids, the branch chain amino acids, but you don't get all the other amino acids and, and that's going to create issues down the line. So we know that in order for protein synthesis to occur, all amino acids play a role in that. Um, so you can't just highlight the three. So if someone's really struggling to consume enough protein through their diet and then really struggling to consume enough um, through supplements, I guess the next best step is something like a BCAA supplement or just a broad range um, uh, amino acid supplement, which they can just put in their water bottle and drink. And it doesn't have that heavy um, feeling that a lot of the protein supplements do. But as you guys said at the very start of this conversation, food comes first. Um, when you can't eat it, drink it. And when you can't drink it, you've just got to find yeah. another 
multi-provide <laughs> supplement that you can because it is critical for men, for women, for anyone that moves their body frequently to be consuming adequate protein in their diet because we see a lot of, um, I don't want to say protein deficiencies, but people that aren't consuming adequate and a lot of side effects off the back of that. So it really is something that's of importance for, for most people who move. Yeah, if you can't drink it, smell it. That's all. That's basically it. Smell it, look whatever. at it, whatever. Say, Just consume it in say, some yeah, way. That's probably not a very... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we've, we've, we've talked about... We've already got quite in depth with uh, amino acids and, and BCAAs, but could you just give our listeners, uh, maybe are not that experienced with that sort of stuff, um, a brief overview of what, what they are and what they entail? Uh, the BCAAs? Yeah, BCAAs and, yeah, and amino acids as well. Yeah, so look, the BCAAs are essentially a group of three uh, essential amino acids. Um, so they're leucine, they're isoleucine, and they're valine, right? And these three are essential amino acids, which means the body can't produce them on its own. It needs to get them from an external source. And there's been um, theories, I guess, in the sports supplement industry over the years that BCAAs are the, the, the fundamental building blocks of muscle protein, um, which has since kind of been a little bit disproved um, because all amino acids play a role, not just those three branch chain amino acids. Um, so amino acids are, are, are fundamentally the building blocks of protein. Um, and so when we consume protein, we break that down into those uh, amino acid um, chains um, and then they get distributed throughout the body. And they've all got slightly different roles. Um, there's essential amino acids, which means our body cannot produce them naturally. We need to consume them. Um, and there's non-essential amino acids, which is the opposite. Our body can produce those amino acids naturally. We don't need to consume them as such. But there isn't such thing as an amino acid, which is more important than any other amino acid. They're all important. And that's, of course, excluding any health complications that are depleting one amino acid. And, of course, we would recommend supplementing that amino acid to boost the profile back up. But when it comes to a general healthy person looking to, you know, build a little bit of muscle or increase their exercise performance, it's very important we're getting a broad range of amino acids. And this is why we talk to, um, uh, when we talk to vegan clientele or vegetarian clientele, um, we know animal products create, uh, uh, contain a full amino acid profile, um, whereas a lot of the vegetarian-based protein products uh, do not contain a full uh, amino acid profile. And therefore, we need the protein combined. So getting different sources of vegetarian-based proteins, combining it into a meal, so we do get that um, full amino acid profile. So um, really, really important. And that's one of the big um, worries with, with a nutritionist um, working with a vegan or vegetarian client is they're not getting that full amino acid profile and therefore um, their muscle tissue uh, you know, suffers, I suppose. They struggle to, to build tissue that build your tissue and in fact they're often breaking tissue down um so really really important we're getting a full range of aminos yeah and are there any other sports supplements you recommend for your clients look not really no um I, i'm of the try and eat everything first um when it comes to truly performance enhancing natural supplements there really is very few that have been proven effective 
um, a protein powder. Um, so protein itself um, is one. Creatine is something that's interesting um, for, I don't really train elite strength athletes anymore, but um, if I was working with an elite strength athlete, that's something that I might look at supplementing them with um, just to increase ATP stores and help with that, you know, um, maximum intensity effort exercise. Um, but there really isn't that much that I recommend anymore. Um, the only thing really is if they can't eat the protein, drink it. But but other than that, um, I try and get everything possible from food. Um, and I often find that that is plenty when it comes to um, increasing performance and increasing muscle tissue. The only thing I should say is if someone is deficient in something, a proven deficiency, or if there's some kind of medical condition blocking some nutrient from being absorbed or whatever it may be, of course, supplementing that is important but generally protein is the only thing that i'd really recommend yeah and you talked about earlier about the woman's menstrual cycle and where protein would probably come in the best sort of timing um yeah from your study and from your knowledge general knowledge now is there any certain time of the day that protein you know is the best time to be uh you know taken in or or is it just whatever time of the day does not, not really matter yeah that's an excellent question protein timing really is an uh, uh, important part of this whole um, this whole picture, I suppose. Um, so if we go back 10 years, um, we would have heard of the anabolic window. So that theory was that there's a period of time after physical activity that our muscles are more sensitive to insulin and more sensitive to protein. Um, and therefore, it was critical that we consume protein within that window if we wanted muscle to grow. So that has since kind of been again disproved. Um, and I, I often harp on people's parade because I'm such an evidence-based guy and such a, like I'm a natural born researcher, right? So um, what we now know is total protein intake overrides protein timing. So if you are meeting your protein requirements over a 24 hour window, that is superior to breaking it down into specifically timed protein boluses or protein doses. Okay, so we know that pretty, you know, for fact now. But if you speak to some researchers like Luke Van Loon, for example, he does a lot of research on pre-bed feeding um, for muscle growth, for stimulating muscle growth. And he's shown that if you consume a protein source pre-sleep, um, you do increase muscle protein synthesis in that following 24-hour window but if you look into that research we're looking at like the last half a percent of tissue yeah. that you can squeeze out right so we're looking at like an elite bodybuilder who is looking to just get that last 500 grams of tissue muscle tissue you know when we're looking at just a general person or even a, an athlete that isn't looking for specific body compositional change and then not needing that last tiny bit of muscle growth and squeezing out every last bit of potential they have, it's going to come down to protein, total protein intake over the course of the day. That's that's overrides um, uh, protein timing. However, we have created some acute protein intake guidelines for specific sports, so for resistance training, for endurance training, and for intermittent training, um, because there's some... 
data on um, uh, performance outcomes increasing with some acute doses, um, but that's a minor, minor, minor point. The big point is meet your protein requirements over the course of a 24-hour window, and you're going to see um, the best results. So talking about actual sources of protein, we talk about animal protein, and on one end we have vegetarians and vegans who say saturated fat and uh, it, it can harm your health, animal protein is not the way to go. Yep. Then you have carnivores who are like, only yep. only meat, like everything meat, no fiber. And it's like, people might be stuck in the middle of like, I don't know where to start. So what are your thoughts on having too much protein from animal sources? Yeah, look, I, I like in nutrition, the thing I love about it is it's so polarizing. There's one person at this end of the scale and there's one person at this end of the scale and there's nobody in between. It's either you're doing all, all meat or you're doing all vegetarian and for whatever reason, there isn't, let's do some meat and some vegetarian and common sense would state that that would probably be a more realistic, sustainable, smart way of reaching your goals, right? And that's the beauty of nutrition. There's polarizing with everything. There's yeah. don't eat sugar or you can eat sugar. You know, there's don't eat fat or eat, there's nothing in between. So look, I think common sense would state, and I'm definitely not an expert in, in when it comes to, um, you know, meat eating versus vegetarian eating sources and the cardiovascular risk and all that sort of stuff. But my common sense answer would be get some of both because all protein sources are going to be providing different levels of amino acids. So beef contains different levels of amino acids to fish. One isn't superior to the other, they're just different. And it's the same with legumes, and it's the same with tofu, and it's the same with nuts and seeds. They're all providing something slightly different. So common sense would state, let's have a little bit of everything, try different things, mix it up, so you're getting a really nice broad range of amino acids. Um, and as you mentioned, you're getting the fiber, you're getting the, the good quality carbohydrates, you're getting all the nutrients off the back of that as well. You want a variation. Um, you know, variety is a spice of life, right? So don't go one end or the other, go somewhere in the middle. Good point. So you heard it here first, all you protein extremists. Um, uh, <laughs> use some common sense and get some it's variety. Controversial. It's yeah. controversial. Or fight Drew. Yeah. <laughs> fight Drew, guys. <laughs> Or we can link Drew's uh, address down below. And, you don't know where I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're just going to go like one of the last couple of questions. Um, but are there any negative effects of too much protein? More specifically, does, does too much protein uh, impact organs such as the liver uh, very much? Or, or what sort of negatives are there from taking yeah, too much? And, yeah. and the kidneys is one that's been, um, that's been brought up. Um, Jose Antonio did this research um, because he was sick of people talking about this. Too much protein is bad for the liver and bad for the kidneys. So he did this research quite a few years ago now. He fed people up to 4.4 grams of protein per kilo. Wow. 4.4 grams of protein. Exactly. So to put that in perspective, if you're a 50 kilo person, 50 kilos times 4.4 is 220, whatever it is, grams of protein way too much protein these subjects couldn't even eat that amount of protein yeah. right and basically what he wanted to prove is he wanted to take blood he wanted to take all these um, health markers um and see if there was an effect on on liver enzymes and on kidney function all this sort of stuff he found there was no adverse effects whatsoever oh, wow. on healthy subjects consuming up to 4.4 oh. grams of protein 
per kilo. And remember, 4.4 grams of protein is almost unachievable to consume. Yeah. You are dead set eating nothing but beef or meat or whatever all day. It is almost impossible. So no, there is no adverse, adverse health effects that we know of um, consuming high protein diets unless you have a prior medical condition, right. in which case you should consult your whoever your medical specialist is. But for healthy subjects, um, no, there is no um, upper limit of protein. It's interesting. Yeah, and, and are there any specific uh, medical conditions that would impact that or is it just any, you know, any sort of dietary condition? Oh, we're looking primarily at kidney disorders. Yeah. So kidney and liver disorder. So uh, filtration issues, issues with um, uh, things like hepatitis and things like yeah. um, fatty liver disease and things like that, where the liver is already compromised. Um, any kind of kidney disorders as well, where the where the kidney, sorry, are compromised. Um, that's what we're looking at primarily. And then there's the other end of the spectrum when it comes to digestion, digesting that amount of protein as well. So. Um, if we have digestive complaints, um, obviously consuming that huge amount of protein um, just wouldn't sit very well. Yeah. It'd be very uncomfortable to be around um, all day. Um, but the recommendations for protein intake, um, as I said, they're sitting around the 1.4 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. So a very achievable level and, and, and quite a like normal level of protein, I suppose. Most people, um, particularly athletic population, don't have too much of a drama meeting those protein requirements. Um, and more isn't better, I should say. So 1.4 to 1.6 is a recommendation. That doesn't mean that two grams is better. We know that 1.4 to 1.6 is optimal. More isn't necessarily better. So you don't need to be consuming in excess of that, um, thinking that you're going to get better performance outcomes because that hasn't been shown at all. Cool. And I also wanted to ask about alcohol and its effect on muscle building and protein synthesis. So do you want to go into that a bit? Yeah, look, this is one of the, um, one of the big areas of concern for people looking to build new tissue because we do know that the consumption of alcohol um, is a catabolic um, substance, um, which means it doesn't aid in the building of new tissue. It's quite the opposite. It, it, it actually starts to degrade our ability to build new tissue. Um, so if you are looking at increasing exercise performance, increasing adaptation to exercise, and increasing muscle protein synthesis, the strong recommendation is to stay away from alcohol as much as you possibly can. Um, you see, like if we look at the extreme and we look at an elite level bodybuilder, for example, who his only goal is to build as much muscle tissue as possible in a short time frame, you do not see them drinking alcohol during their preparation at all because they know it's a catabolic action so it's the same with with anybody looking to take themselves to the next level of physiological capabilities restricting alcohol consumption is going to be crucial in that process and uh, like when, when we're talking gen pop we're looking at you know average joe who just wants to go to the gym a few times a week and just wants to get a little bit fitter and just a little bit better and a little bit stronger it's not going to greatly affect you but yeah. when we're looking to more towards the elite level population where you know performance measures are so small 
the difference between winning and losing is so small. Um, abstaining from alcohol is the recommendation for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> and now just to finish off, we, we love asking these last two questions. Well, this is the last question, but the other one is more sort of promoting yourself. So um, we'll let you have that platform after. But um, just the last question we like to ask all our listeners is just an overall tip for our listeners um, in how they can improve their overall health in any way. Yeah, look, how about I start this answer by going back to the very start and I'll just give a rounded overview of um, the female population. So for women who are looking to increase their exercise performance, they're looking to increase muscle protein synthesis, they're looking to essentially get better at their chosen sport or their chosen activity. Their recommendation is to consume 1.4 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilo of their body weight, okay? So it's times your weight times 1.4 to 1.6 and meet that protein requirement. Now, I should just say that, let's just say that number is 80 grams of protein per day. Um, That doesn't mean 80 grams of beef, right? Because 80 grams of beef isn't 80 grams of protein. So a lot of people get confused with that. So protein or or sorry, uh, meat is roughly 20%, 25% protein. So just make sure you do those figures correctly. So meet that protein guideline. Um, My second recommendation for for the female athletic population is um, start to decrease your training load, i.e. the volume, so the amount of times per week, the intensity, so the amount you're lifting or the distance you're running or whatever it may be, start to taper that off around your bleed. So before and after around that period, start to taper that off because we sh- we're showing signs in that period of being more catabolic because estrogen is low, okay? Um, the third thing I'll say is if you're struggling to consume that amount of protein from your diet, drinking it through a protein powder is a really good way of reaching that goal. Um, and I guess if I'm giving a, a, a well-rounded overview for everybody, um, it is try to meet your protein requirements, particularly in times of increased exercise output. So for example, if you are um, doing a resistance training session or you're going for a long run, just be really conscious of on that day, ensuring as absolute priority, making sure you're meeting that 1.4 to 1.6 grams of protein in that particular day. Should be every day, but we have lives, we have work, we have stuff going on make that a priority on those particular days and, and you'll see an increase in improvement in your output, in your physiological capabilities and in your muscle tissue as well. So that's probably the best advice, best tip I can give when it comes to this topic. Perfect. And I want to thank you, Drew, for coming on because uh, you're very evidence-based and I respect that and we need more people that are evidence-based and as well, you're not biased towards one side. You're very... Um, in the middle in regards to what you think and you don't have a particular opinion, rather you're just giving evidence-based facts. So thanks for that. And I just want to give you a chance now to let the listeners know if they want to follow along with some of your advice and where you are, where they can find you. Yeah, look, we we do a lot of work on social media. So a lot of stuff on on Facebook and Instagram and and our website as well. So you can check that out. It's Avexia, E-V-E-X-I-A, Wellbeing. Um, on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, 
whatever website, all that sort of stuff. So you can follow along on that. Um, and you can also keep an eye out for our review, which is being published as we speak. Hopefully that should be um, through that process by kind of mid-November, maybe late November for a publication there. Um, that's a summary of our um, findings and our protein requirements for females. That's the first one ever completed. So it's really exciting to have that release really soon. Um, so, you know, that'll be up on our socials and stuff for, for any, um, you know, personal trainers out there who work with female athletes or for any female athletes who are looking to expand their knowledge and their capabilities. Um, that's a really, really good paper to read if I don't say so myself. Yeah, congrats, congrats on that. That's, that's amazing. And I know like a lot of females can learn from that. Yeah, and we'll link everything in, in the description of this, this episode. So no need to worry if you can't um, get to a phone right now. We'll leave it in the description to check after. So thanks so much for coming on, Drew. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, some really interesting uh stats there about about protein and really everyone can sort of benefit from that so thank you so much for coming on absolute pleasure boys hopefully speak to you soon yeah and we'll catch you guys next week